I want to greet all you brethren around the world who may be listening into this later. We certainly are praying for our brethren in Banaat who hope all you folks are blessed and protected and delivered. And we certainly are praying for our brethren who have trials all over the world. Many of them we don't even know about. But it's important that we do understand those things and know that we need God in so many, many ways. At the In the update here, Mr. When I read part of it here, I just wanted to read this part from Mr. Graham Hemphill, our elders' report on our brethren in Manaatu. According to Mr. Hemphill, our brethren in Port Vila, that's the capital, are, quote, very happy to hear that someone is coming over to offer support and to help them get back on their feet. They all have learned some sobering lessons from their experiences Truly, life and all we are familiar with is fragile and can be gone in an instant. That's from his report. And it is important that we realize that. What is really the most important thing in life? We all need to think about that. There are several aspects of it that we cover, so my aspect today is not the only one, but you have to think about what is really the most important thing in life. Our life can be changed so quickly if we suddenly get a horrible typhoon, such as has never hit that area before, wiping out buildings, wiping out lives, wiping out old people, wiping out darling little children who haven't even started their life yet. Everything changes. The buildings we're familiar with are gone. Our loved ones are gone. Seem like everything is gone in some of these situations. It is very sobering, and it means, makes us realize our need of God so I hope all of us around the world can pray for one another as an extended family within the Church of God and we need to think about these things. And certainly as the Passover approaches, as God's Passover approaches, we want to think about what is really important. Prophecy is very important, and I do want to preach on that more as we have opportunity and need and certainly physical health. We've had some sermons and studies on that. Physical health is extremely important for us to keep going. Certainly money and travel and having fun are important, but they're not the most important thing. And we need to think about what are the really key issues of life. Our ultimate goal is to have eternal life in God's kingdom. I think all of us know that. That's our ultimate goal. We have life now, which could be wiped out very quickly. Some of us are getting older. It could be in a natural process. But for young people, as I said, I learned a lesson way back when my friend Dick Armstrong died. I thought, wow, 29 years old and he's just gone. So don't feel sorry for the older folks. Be careful. <laughs> Thank God for every day you have because their lives can change very quickly. Back in First John, and turn back near the end of your New Testament, not the Gospel of John, but the first epistle of John, in First John chapter 5, notice what Almighty God tells us here in His Word. This is the testimony, First John chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 11. We have the testimony of God, the most important things. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. How? And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. 
How do you get eternal life? There's only one way, and that is through Jesus Christ. And we need to really think about that. And Passover is a very good time to do that because most of the book of Acts is filled about them preaching over and over and over about Jesus Christ. He is risen. He is risen. He's coming again. He's going to set up his kingdom. He's our leader. He's our king. He's our God. They spoke about another king, one Jesus. Yes, he is our king. He is our savior. He is our merciful and faithful high priest. He's going to judge us in due time. It tells us in John the fifth chapter, God will judge us through Jesus Christ. He's not judging us directly. He's judging us through Jesus Christ, who was tempted in all points, like as we are, and yet without sin. He understands us. And God has delegated that judgment to Jesus Christ. He says we must honor him as we honor the Father. As we honor the Father. That's in John, of course, the Gospel of John. So think about that's the way we get eternal life. Let's turn to Romans now. You know, the Protestants often just quote Paul, the Apostle Paul, and they do not quote him directly or explain it correctly. That's one reason I started the Epistles of Paul class. There was no Epistles of Paul class when I came to college. But I got Mr. Armstrong's permission to introduce the course into it because I found that was the part of the Bible the brethren would ask about. Most of all, when we went out on the baptizing tours, as Peter said, Paul wrote many things hard to be understood. So I wanted to be able to explain every single verse so people could understand them. And Paul wrote a lot of wonderful things that just get them straight, of course, which we should do and we do do in God's church, in the God's true church. Let's turn to Romans now, the epistle of Paul to the Romans. And in verse chapter 5, and turn here, if you would, to verse 8. God demonstrates his own love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were sinners. We were rebels. Christ died for us anyway. Much more than having been now justified by his blood. Then say we're saved by his blood. The Protestants always say we're saved by the blood of Jesus, saved by the blood of Jesus. The Bible does not say that directly. We are saved by, or justified by his blood. Justify is a word that means to make right, to make it one. Some of you have the old electric typewriters, and some of you know they have an automatic justifier on the right margin. That is, the margin will line up at the end an even way and then break the word in half so that it could come down on the lower line and will keep the, the margins even. It makes even. It makes right. And in the scriptural sense, it means to right the wrong, make us right with God again. We are justified. We are forgiven our past sins. It does mean we're given all, forgiven all the future sins we may commit, but we're made right at that moment. We're justified. We're made right with God at that point in time. The Protestants have a clever way to explain it as though you're saved. You're not saved yet, but you are made right at that point. We are justified by his blood, his shed blood, what we talked about a couple of weeks ago in my Passover sermon, which is precious. He was willing to shed the blood of the Son of God because he was the one who made us, and his life is worth more than all of our lives put together, just like if you made a whole bunch of toy soldiers, you could break them up and your life would be more than their life. We're, we're, we're justified by him 
and we're justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. But how? For if we were, when we were enemies, rebels, going our own way, fooey on you, God, fooey on you, preachers. They're saying today, increasingly, Americans are becoming the nuns. That is, they have no religion at all. When we were reconciled to God through the death of the Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved. How? By His blood. We are saved by His life. And that's the key we've got to think about. We've certainly got to take the Passover. We need to have profound feeling about the blood of the Son of God who was shed to pay for our past sins. But in the future... He won't keep applying that sacrifice unless he is having obedient children, unless, frankly, he is living his life in us. And that's what it means to be a Christian. A Christian doesn't mean just one who follows Christ or who believes in Christ. The devils believe and tremble, as it says back in the second chapter of James. They know there's a God. They know there's a Christ. But they don't obey their Creator. So a Christian is one who has God living his life in him, as I say, and want to repeat it and don't want to wear it out. Mr. Armstrong kept talking about the two trees, which is very important. But I talk about what I think is the best one-word definition or one-verse definition of Christianity in the entire Bible, and it is, brother. No one's ever come up with a better one and told me about it yet, and I've been teaching the Bible for about 63 years. It says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I'm crucified with Christ. Your old self has to die. Yet I live. Yet not I. The old ego, that's the very word used in the Greek, ego, E-G-O. Yet not the ego, the selfish self. But Christ lives in me. That's the key. Christ lives in me, Paul says. And Christ must live in you. Or you will not have eternal life. You will not ever have eternal life unless Christ someday, if you have to come to a repentance or a deeper repentance than you've ever had before, Christ must live in you. And the life I now live in the flesh, Paul wrote, I live with the faith of, the word of is in the Greek, the, the possessive of, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20, now that same word of the faith of Christ, I think it's used in verse 16 of that same chapter. It's also the same word in the Greek that's used back in Galatians, I mean in Revelation 14, 12. This is the faith of the saints, that is the true saints of God. They that have, they that keep, have the faith of Jesus, not in, faith of Jesus, and keep the commandments of God. That's the true Christianity, Christ, the faith of Jesus, having Christ live his life in us. So we're saved by his life, his life within us. Turn, if you would, now to Romans chapter 5. I know I'm already here. And then let's turn at this time to John 15, brethren. John 15. And I want to begin reading here. In John 15, the Gospel of John uh, chapter 1 John 15 Jesus said I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, we do bear fruit sometimes, but we're not growing as much as we should. We're just kind of laying at sea and we're just wandering along, not doing too much. We're marking time. We're not zealously letting Christ live in us. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. He doesn't kill it. He doesn't throw it away, but he prunes it like you prune the dead leaves or the dead branches off of a tree so it could grow better. He prunes that it may bear more fruit. God wants us to bear much fruit. Verse 2, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. Yes, Christ must abide in you, brethren. Think about it. Does Christ abide in you? In everything you think, in everything you say, in everything you do, do you reflect Jesus Christ? Do you reflect Jesus Christ in your warmth, your love, your kindness, your outflowing concern? As I get older, I realize how important that is. When I was growing up in a mining town in Joplin, when my dad bought me golden gloves, not golden gloves, but gloves, boxing gloves, when I was only four or five years old, and teach me to be tough. And we learned all kinds of stuff like that growing up in that kind of city. I thought that was more important to be masculine, to be tough, than to be kind and loving. I thought the old ladies are kind and loving. Let them take care of that. We take care of businesses as young men. But the most important thing is that, and God tells us that over and over again. And I'm trying to learn that more than I ever have before. But frankly, all of you do too. How lovingly and happily do you remember most people? Do you remember you had a teacher you really loved a lot because he was tough? No. you remember someone who had mercy, where they were kind they had sincere concern for you and outgoing concern and patience and kindness and warmth. That's how you remember, and that's how people ought to remember us, who have patience and kindness and warmth. We're not always competing with each other, as we learn in sports. We're trying to help each other, help each other, stir each other, build each other's strength, appreciate the strengths of the other people. And another thing that is a true Christian that's difficult for many people to do, and that is to forgive and forget. You may not totally forget, but you don't keep carrying it around. You don't keep being mad about it forever. Forgive. Don't carry that stuff around in your head. It hurts you. It doesn't hurt the other guy. Forgive other people. I've told you how in the work of God, some people who were not carnal and some maybe were just partly carnal came down on me. I could start telling stories as I do too much sometimes in some of our masculine conversations with other ministers. But we don't need to do that. I need to forgive them from the heart and not worry about that. And you need to forgive others from the heart and not carry it around. We've got to completely forgive and forget and just put it out of our mind so we don't carry it around in the top of our mind where it practically never comes up. They're human beings. They've made a mistake. Tough luck. I've made a lot of mistakes and God has to forgive me over and over and over. Boy, if he carries it around and he's ready to come right down on me the minute I make another mistake, but I'm finished. I'm going to be in the lake of fire. But I'm glad God is not like that. And I hope you're not like that. Don't try to get even. Don't brood on how someone has hurt you at some time. 
I know my dad really spanked very, very hard as I grew up. I told you how one time he took me down in the basement and taught me a lesson, which I haven't forgotten to this day. Until I said, I'll be good, I'll be good, I'll be good. And I was very good for two or three days. <laughs> and as a little boy, I got over that and kept doing some more bad things. But I never did something that bad, frankly. I, I kicked him right in the shin. He is trying to correct me and... I was a feisty little guy. I just kicked it, grew blood, and I saw him bend down and uh, rail down his sock, and there was the blood, and his face turned white, and those light blue eyes like Mrs. Ames has. She has my dad's eyes more than I do. I have my mother's dark pupils. But something about that look, I something was going on. It's bad. <laughs> it was very bad. But when he spanked me other times, maybe hard, sometimes for something I didn't do, my mother, of course, was always feminine, wonderful, which a woman often is in those situations, very comforting. She'd say, well, Roderick, you know the other time you were bad, your dad didn't spank you. So sometimes he spanks you too hard, but maybe that's for all the times he didn't spank you. <laughs> you need to think about it that way. And that's true. That's true. We have to understand. and We have to forgive one another. We're not all perfect. Sometimes we make a mistake and hurt someone more than we realize. We've all got to forgive each other. If we don't forgive, we will not be forgiven. So those are things we have to learn if we're going to reflect Jesus Christ in every way, and I hope we can do that. He said in verse 4, Abide in me and I in you. That's the key. Christ must live his life in us. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him. Christ must live in me. Christ must live in you. Must he do that perfectly? Well, he will do it perfectly if we do our part, but none of us does our part perfectly. So he does divide in us perfectly. But if our attitude is right, he keeps working and working with that attitude. The rest of our life that he sees we're on the right track, we mean it with all of our heart. We want him to live perfectly in us. We pray, press with tears in our eyes, clean me up and scrub me out, make me like you are. And Christ knows we mean it. Then he will forgive us and he will keep cleaning us up. He will have patience with us. Christ must abide in you. He who abides in me and I in him, verse 5, bears much fruit. And we will bear much fruit in our lives to the degree that Christ lives in us. Some of you here are bearing much fruit with the training you've had, the experience you've had in the church. I don't want to name one or two, then I'll leave others out and they'll get their feelings hurt. But we all do the best we can. One of the first men I ever baptized in the early baptizing tours, the first one was for Raymond Manair, 1951. A lot of you weren't even born yet. And I was out across the United States baptizing people. But his name was A.M. Coffin. I've told you that story before. He was 84 years old, the same age I am. And I had a, a youthful uh, sense of humor, maybe perverted humor at time. I thought, well, I'm 21 and he's 84. He's four times as old as I am. His name is Coffin. He's ready for the coffin. <laughs> he was very old, very old. But you know, that man was baptized and he meant it. And he started coming to the Feast of Tabernacles several years after that, until he got to be nearly 90, as I remember. 
and he was able to get to Big Sandy for the Feast of Tabernacles and all kinds of things. And the age he had, I had to later think about it, which I did. Well, God called me at age 19. I had the chance to start much, much earlier. I had the chance to be taught at the feet of Mr. Herbert Armstrong in person, hundreds or thousands of hours. He didn't have that chance. So I'd better do better. And all of you in the church here who've been in the church for years, we need to do better. God will judge us with what we do according to what we have to do with. Let's do the best we can to reflect Jesus Christ. Without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast as a branch and is withered, and they gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Yes, in the lake of fire, finally, using the analogy. If you abide in me and my words... Here it is, the Word of God in this book. Study this book. Feast on it. Feed on it. Drink in of it to where it becomes the way you think as you read it over, as you meditate on it and say, God, help me to live by this Word. Help me to understand this. Help me to reflect this. This is the thing we've all got to do. So if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. God will hear your prayers. But many times we do not feast on Christ's word. We don't have much faith. Christ is not very real to us. God is not very real to us. And we often ask things that are not good for us at that time. Maybe God will give it to us later. Maybe he won't give it to us at all if it's asked for in a wrong attitude. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. And every one of you in this room, you know, frankly, brethren, you older men, you older women, you middle-aged men and women, and you younger men and you younger women, there is no limit, when you really understand it, over what God can do with you if you give your life fully to God and if Christ lives fully within you, he can use you very, very powerfully in different ways that you may not even think of now. If Christ is simply pouring out from you through the Holy Spirit, you can do a whole lot, maybe more than you realize. And none of us have given our lives to Christ to that extent. Let's not kid ourselves. As I occasionally read things over and think about Moses, for instance, among many others, and after he was given the Ten Commandments by God, of course, he fasted first for 40 days and 40 nights. Then he came down and threw those things down. He had righteous indignation. God indicates he was so terribly shaken that here was the people having a sex orgy, drinking and dancing and carrying on. He smashed those things. They were not worthy of the Ten Commandments. But then God let him to go back up there a few days or a few weeks later. It may have been a few weeks later. But in the meantime, he fasted 40 days and 40 nights again. Read it back in Deuteronomy chapter 9. And he said, I prostrated myself. And I prostrated myself again and again. He fell on his face. God, help us. Clean us up. Scrub us out. Have mercy on these people. Don't wipe them out. I don't want you to build another kingdom through me, as God offered to do. I want you to help these people, help them to get it. And he fell on his face, prostrated himself over and over and over before God. Have you done that? I doubt if anyone in this room has done that to that extent. I know I haven't. I don't know of anyone who ever has in our age. Has sought God with his being the way Moses did. But God used him so powerfully 
And he speaks of them in a number of times how Moses will be there with the other saints in glory in the coming government of God set up soon on this earth. So we want to have that. Then we will bear much fruit. Now, let's go at this point to 1 John 5, 3. 1 John, if you would, brethren. And let's turn back here to 1 John 5. In this case, we'll check, go to verse 3. We went over a little bit later. For this is the love of God. We're to have God's love in us. People say, oh, we must just have love. Okay, what is that love? This is the love of God that we keep His commandments, plural, all of them. His, not the Son of, not just Jesus' commandments, but it says in the previous verse, verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. Not just Christ, certainly indicating and including God the Father. When we love God and keep His commandments. The Protestants sometimes have where they'll say, you know, the commandments of Jesus and keep my commandments. But of course, brethren, understand the Bible certainly doesn't mean to limit it. Christ is God. And Christ and the Father are one. They have one set of commandments. But just for the sake of argument, remember the antecedent here is God the Father keep his commandments this is the way god's love is expressed how do you love god with all your heart and strength and mind you worship him you adore him you put him way ahead of everything else you obey him and you put no other god you don't put your job you don't put your money you don't put your friends or anything else your family ahead of god you don't make an idol of anything Secondly, you do not take his name in vain. You don't cross God's name around carelessly like some of these charismatic people. I don't want to wait. They yell and scream names about God. That's very, frankly, irreverent, foolish. Don't take that name lightly. And other people, of course, in the locker rooms, and I've been in plenty of them, they cuss and take Christ's name in vain, just like breathing in and breathing out. They don't know anything. God will forgive them later. It's not the unforgivable sin, but it's sure bad. Terrible disrespect to their God that gives them that life and breath to take God's name in vain. And then after that, you're not to have any idols. And of course, uh, no, I'm sorry, you're, you're not. First, you, you you don't have any idols or anything ahead of God. And then you, then you, uh, well now in my old age, I can even forget the... The Ten Commandments, I'm ashamed of myself, but I'm just going to confess that just to have the next one comes out here. Uh, but some of you read ahead in Exodus 20 here, and uh, you shall have no other gods before me, not make any self-carved image. I guess I did cover that. And then you shall take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And, of course, the final one, I thought there was one other I didn't cover, but I guess I didn't have any carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day. The Creator reveals Himself in the Sabbath today, that this is the day on which He created the heavens and the earth. And we're to remember Him, the true God, by keeping this day holy. Six days you'll labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. For in six days the Lord made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Therefore God blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. 
one period of time he puts a special blessing on. And I'll confess, I must be getting old. That's the first time I've ever forgotten the Ten Commandments of my 63 years in God's Word. I just forget which one I left out or whatever. It's interesting. The Fifth Commandment is kind of a bridge commandment between God and your neighbor. Verse 12, honor your father and mother. Your father and mother are sort of like God. They humanly created you until you're a little child. They stand in the place of God in a certain limited degree, you know. I remember when one of my sons, I think my older son Mike was a little boy, he was very impressed with me about some things. He was real small then, and now he's bigger than I am. But he said, Daddy, is God as big as you are? And I said, yes, he sure is, Mike. But he didn't understand that yet. He thought his dad was real big. So there is that that relationship in that sense, a deep respect that ought to be taught for father and mother to stand to a limited degree. The ones who create us and sustain us at first, God works through them, our father and mother. So we're to keep all the commandments. And the next six commandments talk about, of course, your neighbor and loving your neighbor as yourself. So you don't ever think about killing others. Don't let your mind dwell on every human life is precious. You do not commit adultery. You don't ever look on another man's wife in that way. Or even a single woman who may be the wife of another man later. And ruin that special relationship they could have by defiling her. Don't do that. You're not to kill, to commit adultery, to steal, to lie. And you're not to covet. All those things God tells us in our relationship with one another. If we live that way of life and we ask Christ to live in us to do that, we can do it. Then we honor God by living that way of life. So we've got to reflect reflect God in all those things. And God wants us to do this. Let's turn now to Matthew chapter 5, brethren. Matthew chapter 5 at this point. And I'm going to... uh, read here at the beginning of what I'm sure you know is the Sermon on the Mount in this particular case. Matthew 5, and uh, this is beginning in verse 1. Christ, seeing the multitudes, went up to a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, And as we've explained, I think I've explained many times, it doesn't mean you're spiritually poor. It means you're extremely humble. You are recognizing your own nothingness. You are absolutely nothing compared to God. You're poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You're not puffed up saying how great I am. You're realizing how small you are compared to God. Blessed are those who mourn. Spiritually mourning, so it describes back in Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4, seeing the world around you, how awful it is, and you mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, which has the connotation of teachable. You're willing to be taught to change, to grow, for they shall inherit the earth, not heaven, the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And brethren, I've been trying to emphasize this a lot near the end of my life, and I hope all you can get it. I wish I'd been more on that way back when. I was on it, frankly, more than many of my classmates in Ambassador College, but we can all be a lot more. 
to literally hunger and thirst to drink into this book and learn more of it to where we think like God thinks. And don't pull back on it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful. Are you a merciful person? Are you kind? Are you loving? Are you willing to forgive? All those things are involved. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Most people are not pure in heart. And none of us are perfectly pure in heart in this flesh. But as we get older and as you go through trials, hopefully even you younger people, I've had moments when I was more that way, other times less that way. But you realize that every human being is precious. Every human being is made in the image of God. And you're not trying to work the system. You're not trying to get something from others. You're simply trying to help, to give, to serve, to honor your Creator. And to help this other human being made in the image of God. Pure in heart. You're not trying to get ahead. You're trying to do the right thing. No axe to grind. They shall see God. Because frankly it indicates we will then be God. Of course. If we have that attitude. We will be God. Then we'll see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. We must make peace, not always want to get things stirred up. Well, they did this to me, I'm going to get back at them. Well, I came to college thinking that way because I was competitive and I came from a bunch of, uh, you know, basketball. Our junior high basketball coach yelled at us, his name Moppin, he cussed us. And you get up there and beat the blank, blank out of these other guys on you know, South Junior High or other cities. No, you're not supposed to be that way. You're to have a right attitude to love and to help others and hope that the best man wins in a general way. It's just a game, playing with the ball. So what? We're all playing little games of marbles. And our marbles will be taken away in a few years. And if we have the right attitude, we'll be in God's kingdom. If we won't, we won't be there. So blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So blessed when men persecute you, be glad. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. We're supposed to be the light. We're to be Christian. We're to have Christ living in us. And you brethren here and you brethren around the world who may hear this later, that's it. That's what marks us as Christians. If Christ is living in us, you're the light of the world. Do people put a light under a basket? No, you put it on a stand so others can see it. Let your light so shine. Don't show off, but do things that can help. It's not wrong. We have an outreach program. We do try to help the world, and we try and should help one another. And God wants us to live that kind of life. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I came not to destroy, but to fulfill. Fill to the full does not mean to do away. He says, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of the commandments that teaches men so shall be called least. Think about this. Which is the least of the commandments? Many in the world think it's the Sabbath day. Okay, whoever therefore breaks the Sabbath day and teaches others what's going to happen to them. He shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But other scriptures show, of course, he won't even be there eventually if he doesn't, isn't willing to understand when God opens his mind. But whoever does and teaches them, who's them? The least of the commandments of God. He shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Then he tells you, you're not only not to murder, you're not to hate. You're to love other human beings. You're not to have the spirit of murder. So he magnifies the law. You're to have that outgoing concern, even for enemies, people that attack you. It may hurt you at the moment, but you're not to develop an attitude of getting even and killing them. Don't do that. Let God take care of it in the end of time. He always will. He always will. I've seen that again and again. He says in verse 27, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. No, you're not to commit adultery. That's a horrible thing. Because marriage is a type of Christ in the church. But I say to you that whoever looks on a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if men go around staring on a woman's body and her sex parts and try to picture sex and so on, let that go through their mind as most young men do over and over and over again. You're having sex in your mind. Just like if you hate someone, you're having murder in your mind. It's the spirit of that. You've got to ask God to clean you up and scrub you out and keep your mind on other things. It's not wrong for a young man to say, well, Joanne is pretty, this young girl going by, and I'd sure like to ask her for a date or talk to her and get acquainted better, and maybe something could work out all right. That's fine. You young men should do that. And if you don't do that, I'm going to get you some extra wheat germ. <laughs> That's okay. But you don't have to mentally undress her and have sex. You must not do that. That's wrong. That's cheapening the whole thing that God made for marriage and for family and for children and so on. So God tells us to have that spirit of kindness, of love, of honoring the young women in the world, of honoring all women, of honoring all men as human beings made in God's image and knowing their potential gods and to love them, to cherish them, to pray for them, to want the best for them and their future. If they marry someone else, they've not been defiled by you, and so on. So think about every human being in that way and how you are to express Jesus Christ and the letter of the law. I mean, the spirit of the law, not just the letter. The spirit of the law does not do away with the letter at all. He says back here in Matthew 7, the last part of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. A lot of these hoop and holler meetings say, just give your heart to the Lord. Say, Lord, take me, I'm yours, and so on like that. No, you can say, Lord, Lord, but that is not going to be the answer unless you do the will of God. And the will of God is expressed here in this book. And the will of God is expressed succinctly in the Ten Commandments, showing you in principle how to love God, how to love your neighbor. Many will say, Lord, we prophesied in your name. In the New Testament, that often includes and usually means inspired preaching. This is talking, frankly, about preachers and religious teachers. They've gone out preached in Christ's name and cast out demons in your name. As a lot of them think they've done, they cast out the demons of ignorance and superstition or whatever they call it. And then many wonders in your name. They're false, do good stuff sometimes. Then, verse 23, Jesus said, the Son of God said, when you do that, I will declare to them, I never knew you. He never did recognize them as his servants, even though they preached in his name. They did kind of good works in his name, but never obeyed him. 
Depart from me, you who practice, and get this, brethren, this is the way it's worded in the New King James, this is the correct translation. You who practice lawlessness. That's worded a little different from the old King James. Lawlessness, he ties it right in here with God's law. If preachers come along, they say, oh, love Jesus and do good and love your neighbor and be a good neighbor and be a good citizen and all, that's fine. But that's very limited if it leaves out God's law. Many do-gooders mean well. They're not called by God. I don't want to make fun of them. Sometimes they just don't know they're not called. So some of their actions are good, but that will never save them if they have the carnal mind. There are people who come along like Mother Teresa. I've read a lot about her. She did a lot of good stuff, but they said, boy, she was vicious at things. She didn't get her way sometimes. She wanted things her way. And, of course, God has not called her yet, and she didn't understand God's commandments. Some of the Catholic priests have a good deal of human dignity and outreach to help other people. Of course, some of the Catholic priests had bastard children scattered all over Italy. One of them named after me, I guess. I shouldn't say that. Roderick Borgia, I think was his name. Alexander VI. Say he had mistresses and, I think whatever it was, 15 wives and 35 concubines all over Italy and, and bastard children from one end of Italy to the other. One of the infallible priests of that system, which God calls the great whore. Did they do good? I'll bet he did. He's a pope. I'll bet he authorized some do-good activities. But the point is, those do-good activities seem to help a little bit for a little while on the surface but ultimately, they do not turn people to the true God so they know God. And they do not give people the genuine fear of God so they don't do all these other things as well. And they simply treat the symptom. Get it? Many Mother Teresas and do-gooders around, they treat the symptom. They'll help the people get some food or clothing or something nice or nurse them and take care of them. That's good as far as it goes. But if it gets in the way of the true God, then what does it do? They treat the symptom, which helps for a few hours or a few years, but the cause, what's the cause of all these things that are going wrong? Breaking God's law. That's what's causing those. A woman, American Methodist missionary, I've told you this book before called Mother India. It's an old book you can get in the library. Mother India by Catherine Mayo, like Mayo Clinic, M-A-Y-O. She'd been there, lived there for years. And she described how the whole system of the Hindu religion was just horrible hurting those people. How the women with their superstition, their false gods, was from the very beginning of a child's life, she would have to give birth over the manure of the sacred cow. At the very time her body's opened up giving birth, what's right there? Flies and mosquitoes and germ-bearing stuff all over because of that pagan, rotten superstition. And all the way through life, the young men and women in that older way of life in India, some of it's still that way in the villages today, they're, super, they're subjected to untold superstition and rottenness that's part of their religion. Religion is a power. Very powerful as it has affected the lives of hundreds of millions and billions of human beings. But it could be a horrible thing. Then near the end of her life, if her husband died before she did, a lot of you older brethren know this, you read it, 
she had to practice sati. That was, he was supposed to hurl her body on the burning pier of her husband who was being set afire. So she was burned alive. Burned alive because of her religion and their do-good ideas. Catherine Mayo exposed that and others did. Now they don't have that. The British came in and did away with that. They did away with these very unsanitary things. And so then Hollywood comes out with all these movies about a passage to India and Gandhi and that indirectly and often directly make fun of the British. They try to make a big deal of the two or three big mistakes the British made rather than understand the hundreds of things they did that were good that revolutionized that whole nation and made it clean, physically clean and cleaner from germs and everything else to the extent they did help. Even now you read about these girls being raped in all the time in India and there's gang raped and things. So they're still very carnal. But to the degree they practice cleanness and some of the Protestant Christian missionaries got in there, that's okay. But it's not to be done in place of God's law. Once you take God's law out, then the problem remains. You're just covering over the symptoms, the immediate sickness, but you're not healing the cause of the disease. I want you to think that through. That's a very important thing, brethren, about real Christianity and how important it is that Christ be part of that and has to do with God's law. So God says you're to keep God's commandments. And if you don't do that, you practice lawlessness. And, of course, he says, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. And, of course, they will not be in God's kingdom at all. So we want to understand these things. Back in uh, the book of Matthew, again, uh, chapter 6, notice the beginning in 14. Matthew 6, 14. Whoops, turn the wrong way. Jesus said here, If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So I've already preached on that, of course, but I wanted to read it. Jesus said that God will not forgive you unless you forgive. And he said in another place, forgive from your heart. So learn to do that, brethren. Then some will say, well, if you have all this love, you would never correct anybody or put anyone out of the church. You're supposed to have love. No. God says in Hebrews chapter 12 that God rebukes and chastens every son he hates. No. He says he rebukes and chastens every son he loves. And the same thing about a human father rebukes and chastens his son mostly because he loves him. He may do it too hard at times because he's human, as my father did at times and others have done and I've done. But you chasten your child so you have to spank your little children so they don't run out in the street and get killed. Yeah, I remember Jim and Mike and Liz, I think, all remember this, that uh, when we were moved to South Orange Grove, uh, one of the college homes, they were be, before they had that freeway running along there, well, South Orange Grove became like a freeway. The cars were just whistling along there, 50, 60 miles an hour. So I took all three of my older children out on the grass strip between the, the curb and the sidewalk, 
And I said, you see those cars when they're all little kids? And they said, you step out in the street, they'll hit you. And I said, they'll knock you to the ground. And I threw one of them down in the crash. <laughs> I made it very vivid. They'll crush you. Don't do that. You play back. Don't you try to sneak through this back gate. I knew the boys would figure out a way to get through there. I said, don't do that. I'm going to spank you if you do that. But this car will do much worse than a spanking. It will kill you. So I illustrated it. I had an illustrated lesson right there. <laughs> I remember that. The kids remembered that, though. They thought that was kind of amusing. And I threw them on the ground. It didn't hurt them. But I was trying to make it so they wouldn't forget. But God wants us to learn that lesson. And people do have to be shaken up to learn sometimes. Jesus said back here in Matthew 23, Matthew chapter 23, he said in in verse 12, or let's go to verse 11, Matthew 23, 11. But he who is the greatest among you shall be your servant. Learn to try to help, to give, to serve others. And whoever exalts himself... You try to be a big shot just for the sake of being a big shot will be abased. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. If you honestly try to humble yourself, as I've told you before, and God is my witness, I did not try to start out and start my own church. It came right down to when they were changing everything. I had to. I could not have lived with myself. And I found that hundreds of people were beginning to go with Gerald Flurry. Hundreds of people were starting to go with Mr. Ted Armstrong, and they would never have done that except this man came along and tried to change the whole way of God. And they called me in, and the two young smartlegs said, Well, we hear you don't agree with us on things. And I said, That's right. I can't go along with that. So then they were going to forcibly retire me or kick me out, and then I had to start a different work, or else I would do nothing. That's what they told me. They said, You will do nothing. I thought, God does not want me to do nothing. Someone's got to stop this great apostasy and have a way out. And that we're still going to teach the full truth. And and that's why I started. That's the only reason I started. I've made many other mistakes of exalting myself, but I did not start this work for that reason. I, I better not name names, but I tried to get two or three of the other leading evangelists to join me. I talked to them. I urged them, let's do it now. No, we don't want to do that. They wouldn't do it anyway. I had to do it. I was the only older evangelist that was willing to step out and give up my pay, give up my retirement, give up my health plan. And I told Cheryl, I said, Cheryl, we may not even be able to have a home for a long time, if ever again. We may have to live in a trailer house. I had made a great big fancy mobile home. I made a trailer house. And I lived in one when I first came to college before the dorm opened up. And you can live in a trailer house. You can starve to death. I did not know whether five people or 500 or 5,000 would start to come with us. We'd had no way of knowing. So we had to step out. But anyway, that's not the point. I've made hundreds of other mistakes. But whoever just starts out trying to make himself have a big title or exalt himself will be abased. So you men in the church, don't try to exalt yourself and just get to be something. Don't push yourself into the ministry. Push yourself to be the foreman of your group just to show off. Try to serve. And if you do that, God may make you the foreman later or the foreman of some other department you haven't even thought about. All kinds of things may open up. But don't exalt yourself. He will, you'll be abased. But he says, he who humbles himself, who really tries to 
give, to help, to serve, even without any big title or big salary. He will be exalted. God will, in the end, take care of you and bless you. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. You pretend to stand in the place of God, say you're God's faithful ministers. For you neither go in yourselves, you don't practice God's way of life, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. You stand in the way. You're false ministers. Shame on you. Christ corrected them powerfully. You say, well, he wasn't very loving. Yes, he was very loving. A true shepherd has to protect the sheep. You can't let these wolves just go around picking off these weak people one by one and do nothing. If your motive is to honor God and protect the sheep, then God will bless that. And if your motive as a parent is to love your children and not let your children do, oh, we don't want to bother them, just let them run out in the street. God will take care of them. No, he may not take care of them. They will die. Or you let them do whatever they want to do. They'll lead them to drugs and sex and drunkenness, everything else as a teenager. You've got to crack down in the right way because you love them. So understand that, brethren. The right exercise of God's government is not something mean against what I'm saying. That's love. And God has a government, and he deals with us the same way as we know us. All should be based on love. That's to be the attitude. That's to be the approach. Now, brethren, let's turn to Colossians, if you would. Colossians chapter 3. And I'm going to begin here in the very first verse. Colossians 3. One of Paul's most beautiful epistles when you read it carefully. If then you were raised with Christ, in other words, if you come up from that watery grave of baptism and you're raised with Christ, he says, seek those things which are above. Don't always be trying to get ahead or beat someone else out of a job or something down here. Have your mind on that heavenly goal, on God's kingdom. Where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Christ and the Father are right now in heaven planning our job. They're preparing to come back, and Christ is going to come to this earth as King of Kings. Try to prepare to do your very best to serve, to help, to give, to obey God's law, to teach people that so you can help them then. Not on things on the earth. For you died. When you were baptized, you said, God, I'm willing to die. I'm giving my life to you. When you're baptized, it is giving your life to your creator. It is a covenant between you and your creator that you're letting the old self die. You're going to let the old self go and down into a burial under the water, a symbol of death. The old self has got to die. You died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Get it. Verse 4. When Christ who is our life. Boy, what a beautiful verse. When Christ who is our life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. He wants you to appear with him. He wants you to be there. But you've got to learn these lessons and have true Christianity and have Christ live in you. He is your life if you're a Christian. Therefore, put to death your members on earth, fornication, all kinds of illicit sex, uncleanness, which can include, of course, homosexuality, dirty jokes, pornography, and so on, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, 
You're always wanting something you don't have, maybe you shouldn't have. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you also once walked when you lived in them. And all of us have lived in them to a degree when we were back as a kid with apart from God. But now you must also put off all these, anger, getting mad and saying, I'm going to get even or whatever. Wrath, malice, blasphemy, dirty, rotten speech, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another. And brethren, please learn that lesson. Do not lie. God hates liars. So he says here, do not lie to one another since you put off the old man with his deeds and to put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. That's the whole thing. Is Christ in you? Brethren, to what to the extent do you personally reflect Jesus Christ and everything you think, everything you say, everything you do. None of us do it perfectly, but that ought to be our goal. We should be genuine Christians with Christ living in us. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy beloved, put on tender mercies, have that loving, kind spirit, tender mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, don't get your back up so quick. Don't be ready to be mad so quick. Don't be willing to accuse others so quick. Bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against one another, even as Christ forgave you, you also must do. Christ forgave you. God forgave you. You also must forgive others and not try to condemn them. But above all these, put on love that total worship and adoration for God and that genuine kindness and loving spirit toward all your fellow human beings, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you also were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. You know, some of you have a sing-along every now and then. You can just feel God's spirit there sometimes that people are having that in the right way that they're loving each other and they're worshiping God and singing these songs of God. And psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and with grace in your heart to the Lord. Verse 17, and whatever you do, think about this, whatever you do, in word, whatever you say, whatever you do, in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. You're a Christian. Do it all because you're a Christian. Do this because this is what Christ would do as best you could make out. Do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So we're to live this way of life. That's what Christianity is all about. And we've really got to understand that and learn to as I say, learn to think that way. As we feed on Christ, we will think that way. Turn back to 1 John again, brethren. Please turn back once again to 1 John, the first epistle of John, back in your New Testament here in chapter 2. 1 John 2, beginning in verse 3. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. We know God as I've said, Billy Graham may know about God, 
the Pope may know about God, but they don't know God, it says right here, unless they keep his commandments. That's why they don't understand prophecy. They don't understand God's plan. They don't know God. They know about him, but they do not keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, does not keep, not just know about, but actually live his commandments, is a liar, God says, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, were to study this word, were to feed upon him, as you read back in John, the sixth chapter. Whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him, and by this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him, in this case he's talking about Christ, obviously, ought himself to walk as, or just as he walked. Walk or live just as Christ lived. And how do you do that? Because Christ lives in you. That's the only way. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Christ lives in me. That's how you do it. There's no other way. You have to have his help, his character, his strength living within you. So remember, that's the way you're going to reflect God and the way you reflect Jesus Christ by him living in you. Now let's turn back at this point to verse 24. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. Interesting how it goes back here. Here's the oldest living apostle at that point, And he's pointing you back to the beginning. And obviously he's talking about the beginning of the gospel. What did Christ say? If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Matthew nineteen seventeen. He said, whoever breaks one of the least of the commandments is least. You know, Matthew chapter 5. All those things I read you there. Go back to the beginning. What did Christ, not some tricky way to explain Paul, John is telling you, go back to what Christ said. Therefore, let that abide you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise he's promised us, eternal life. I said at the beginning of the sermon, that's your goal. That should be your goal, eternal life in God's kingdom. These things I've written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing, you see, the Holy Spirit that opens your mind, which you have received from him, abides in you. And you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie. And just as it is taught you, you shall abide in him. And now, little children, verse 28, were all little children compared to John. And John was probably up at his 90s at the time, a very old man. Even older than me, if that's possible. <laughs> but he's getting very, very old. Abide in, me, in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Boy, that's going to be a great day. When he comes back to this earth as king of kings and we feel the mountains and the islands shaking, we hear noise of the air and suddenly he's coming down. And if we've really been walking with Christ, breaking into this book, thinking about it, talking with Christ, communing with him, even though we haven't done it perfectly, we're going to have a thrill of excitement and gladness come over us. Wow, he's coming. He's coming right now. It's all going to work out. Every tear should be wiped away. The kingdom of God will be here because we have walked with Christ and walked with God and had him living in us. We will be there. So we want to understand that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. 
because we have walked with God, we have walked with Christ, and we have learned to reflect Christ in everything we think, in everything we say, in everything we do, to the best we can, with His help, through His Spirit living within us. May God speed that day.